at the end of the day, greedflation as a theory is not really a theory about the causal impacts of inflation. I think it's important for people to know that. It's much better as a theory of who are the benefactors or losers from inflation. I think as a theory, greedflation really helps us understand that. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is February 8th, 2024, and we're talking with Ahmed Rockman about greedflation, a term that has been hotly debated among economists, policymakers, and the news media in recent months. Dr. Rockman is an associate professor of economics in Lehigh's College of Business. He holds the Charlotte W. and Robert L. Brown III, 78, Summer Research Fellowship, and also is program director for the Lehigh Business PhD in Business and Economics program. In addition, Ahmed is a research fellow at the Institute of Labor Economics, a nonprofit research institute and research network headquartered in Bonn, Germany. Welcome back to the Illuminate podcast, Ahmed. Thanks, Jack. It's always great to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Greedflation is a relatively new portmanteau combining greed and inflation that has crept into economic discussions over the past couple of years. What what does it actually mean? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, I think it's um, it's a new theory, I, I think, in a nutshell. And it's not surprising that there would be new theories that emerge um, after 2021 and 2022 since we were so, so many macroeconomists were, were so terribly wrong about um, the possibility of inflationary pressures building up in the economy. And then economists were also wrong about how, you know, relatively easy, I guess, from, from, from a historical perspective, that the inflation went down. Uh, and so since macro people have been so wrong on so many fronts, it seems <laughs> it's inevitable there would be a variety of, 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 of new thoughts and theories about what are the underlying causes of inflation. And so we have our, our new theory, I think, which is sort of very, uh, yeah, colorfully called greedflation. It's called uh, different things. Uh, but, you know, it really refers to a, an idea. It's really one of two ideas. I would say the first of these ideas is kind of on the frivolous side, not that serious. And the second one is a little bit more of a real serious economic theory that we can grapple with um, and think about. Uh, the frivolous version is this of this is that corporations really just they became greedy. Um, they became um, rapacious when it came to pricing. And in the face of extraordinary macroeconomic chaos, they ultimately took advantage uh, of the American consumer. Right. Um, they're they had greater market concentration. And so that kind of controlled allowed them to you know raise prices far beyond what one might say is a reasonable um, level. And moreover, they kind of lied to us that these corporations misled the reasons for these price increases, suggesting possibly that, well, they had no choice, right? That's the version um, sometimes greedflation is called excuseflation. Doesn't exactly <laughs> roll off the tongue, but okay, I get it. It's yeah, these companies are actually making these wild claims of needing to raise price prices. And we as the consumers are essentially kind of collectively duped. And so that's a definite version of greedflation that that resonates. Um, it's politically charged. It definitely calls for a different kind of action 
uh, maybe against corporations, maybe some punitive responses here. Um, but I would say it's actually, it's a little bit more of the, as I say, a, a more of a frivolous version that doesn't necessarily really hold a lot of backing, either theoretically or empirically. Yeah, it's, it's a term that um, you know, is usually credited to an economist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, Isabella Weber. Uh, coining the term greedflation, and it was, it was as you would, I think, kind of implied, originally met with a good deal of skepticism in economic circles. Oh, yeah, and remains uh, <clears throat> many skeptics uh, still. <laughs> yes, and for example, a headline in The Economist last summer read, greedflation is a nonsense idea. Um, has there been a reconsideration of the role of greedflation, though, in rising prices lately? among economists, policymakers, and news media covering business? Yeah, certainly among certain economists, no. Um, many economists or many policymakers, however, there is at least uh, um, consideration of the things that, as you mentioned, Isabella Weber uh, is talking about. So this is what I'm saying the more, this is the non-frivolous version, uh, is, is going to be Isabella's work. And so um, really where this comes from, Isabella Weber and Evan Wozner, they created, they wrote a paper not too long ago the paper is called Sellers Inflation, Profits and Conflict. Why can large firms hike prices and in an emergency? And so that's a pretty interesting title. It has a lot of specific aspects to it. And their story goes, you know, it's a very simple, this is my simplified version of it, but my, their story goes something like this. During ordinary times, large companies simply can't, you know, they're very reluctant to raise prices unilaterally. Uh, and it's because, you know, even in concentrated sectors, Mark, where, where, where there's a lot of pricing power, there's still this competition that persists. So, you, you know, mathematically, you can demonstrate it doesn't take a huge amount of competitive pressure to keep companies in line and not jack up their price. Because ultimately, if they do and their competitors do not, it's risking losing market share. So the nature of, of competition, even if it's not perfect competition, some degree of competition keeps these companies in check. Now, what Isabella and Evan's work is actually pointing out to this kind of breaks down potentially in the context of supply shocks. So as you know, as we might have remembered in 2020, 2021, we had these bottlenecks in the supply chain, and that's yielding all kinds of shortages of inputs. Um, and the threat of competition actually stops to restrain price gouging because all these companies are sort of facing the same supply crunch. Right? So this leaves a company to actually raise their prices. Um, and there's no real fear that they're going to lose market share. So there's no new competition, ultimately, that's uh, keeping the company in check. And then the final piece of the puzzle of this of this version of greedflation is that these this this becomes particularly important in like concentrated industries and upstream industries. Upstream sectors would be those companies, you know, they produce goods that are critical to the functioning of other businesses. This could be, you know, energy companies, chip makers, uh, these sorts of firms. So when they exploit the bottlenecks, right, and they increase their profit mar margins, they're forcing these downstream businesses to increase their prices as well. And that's the ripple effect that kind of fil filters through the economy. And that's where they claim that it is the price, it is profit margins themselves that are contributing to the overall price in in increases in the economy. That's think their discussion in a so it, you know it's not about like a sudden flare up of greed from companies 
but it is coming from the profit motivation of companies and they're able to exploit the specifics of, you know, bottlenecks and coupled with consumers being maybe a little bit confused about what's going on. And so they're really able to pass off the, those price, uh, any kind of cost increase over with really big price increases for the rest of us. I think at least within uh, the public debate on the issue, um, it, it, there seems to be a very clear and simple argument that um, goes something like this, which is that the excessive corporate profits um, are a prime driver of inflation because, and the proof is, profits increased by far more than inflation during the pandemic and the period immediately after. Uh, for example, in 2021, inflation rose by 7% in the U.S., while corporate profits soared by 22.6%, more than three times the inflation rate. So is the connection between corporate profits and rising prices really that simple and clear cut? Yeah, if only, right? Um, I think these numbers are definitely compelling uh, and it points a, a, a story that seems to suggest that corporate profitability is definitely related to inflation. Um, but again, correlation and causation are not the same thing as I often uh, try to teach uh, consistently to my students. Now, there are studies that I've seen that actually have tried to make this connection. Uh, the Economic Policy Institute, for example, recently suggested that something like 53 or 54 percent of, of the inflation that we've seen in the past recent couple of years was driven by this corporate profitability. Whereas before, profit margins might only contribute to sort of a small part of overall inflation. These studies seem to suggest that there's something, something might be something might be different. Of course, I, I I hasten to add that of course, you know, inflation has been pretty moderate for many decades, and so one thing that I would caution anyone when making this connection between profitability and inflation is that we really don't have very many episodes that we can look at where they have double digit inflation. That's a good thing, right? right. <laughs> we don't want to have eleven or twelve is inflation. When we had it in the seventies. You know, this relationship between price growth and profit margins wasn't really carefully studied that much. So this is sort of a new opportunity for us to look at this relationship. It begs the question of whether this has always been the case in the in the past. It certainly, though, looks like it's the case today. But I would hasten once again to say there is a difference between cause and effect in America. OK, the profit margins of yeah many of these non-financial corporations sort of, you know, they they surged. The question is, did they surge because of the fiscal stimulus that came from the pandemic, right? Which, remember, amounted to something like 25% of the GDP. Uh, that infusion of stimulus and cash in the economy, which, you know, if you remember, the Federal Reserve didn't really offset with interest rates until much, much later. Mm -hmm. It kind of set off this consumer spending. And so, you know, you couple that with the, with the supply chain problems. Um, it's not like this is incompatible with high profitability. Right. And the real question for us is, is it the profitability that's driving the inflation or rather the price increases that's giving the companies enough opportunity to raise prices that they, you know, but that's not like the fuel that's causing the underlying inflation. It could very well be that the underlying inflation is coming from that excess demand that came from all that stimulus. And the companies are reaping the rewards of that, but they are not the prime culprits. I'm wondering what other are are the main factors that have contributed to inflation over the past four years. Obviously, the pandemic was a huge um, uh, 
factor yeah. in all of this. But what are some of the other things that uh, you think have played into it? Yes, uh, along with the pandemic, I'll actually combine the pandemic, this one P, into four P's of inflation. I like to talk about this, especially when I uh, do the Lehigh back to school uh, uh, lecture. So I call it the four P's of inflation, Putin, the people, the president, or Powell. These are my these are the culprits that I that I point to. And of course, they're they're stand ins for these big macro ideas. Putin is a supply chain problem. Uh, that was the limited supply. The people is like a price wage expectations problem. Uh, that's a standard inflation story where workers demand higher pay. Firms acquiesce and give the higher pay, but then they pass it over to higher prices and then it fuels more higher pay and so on. Those are the people. The president, of course, stands for fiscal policy. Was it all the spending coming out of the White House and Congress that creates the uh, the 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 fuel for for inflation fires? And then finally, Powell, who's of course head of the Federal Reserve, is it the monetary policy? Is it the printing of too much money that that caused it? And so all these are more traditional factors that relates to inflation. To the question that you mentioned, these are the things that most macroeconomists have focused on over the last few years. I guess. Possibly now I have to add a fifth P. That fifth P is profit, right? <laughs> it could be that now it's the profitability and that's a new thing. Um, and it's exciting because now, yes, we have a new way potentially of thinking about uh, inflationary dynamics and what to do about it. I'm not sure, you know, so we're going to have a lot of disagreement and a lot of debate, but it's always exciting when these new theories kind of pop up and we let the scientific world of macroeconomics you know, figure it out, figure out what the value, you know, what, what are the benefits of, of this new idea? What are some of the downfalls of this idea? Now, from the research you've seen then, um, how much do you believe corporate profits actually contribute to inflation at this point? Now, you yeah. had mentioned the one study that said it was just over half. Yes, yes. And there's been a couple of other pretty prominent studies, one done by the Kansas City Federal Reserve, another done by the European Central Bank, and they both kind of echo this idea of inflation being uh, driven by a little bit of a you know a causal claim without necessarily really getting into the uh, the ability to tease that out. They're still saying something pretty provocative, which is that is corporate profitability that really drove this inflation through this upstream process that I had mentioned earlier. There are a few things that don't look really great about the greedflation hypothesis, uh, even that serious version. So one of them. And this is also documented by one of these studies by the Kansas City Fed, is that oftentimes companies, um, they will do what's called anticipatory price setting. And that's where companies will, you know, they're expecting higher costs in the future. And so they actually raise their prices today in that anticipation of dealing with their margins, which they predict in the future will be squeezed. And actually, it turns out that every recession going back to the end of World War II seems to have this this um, pattern of firms in a recession, yet the input costs are sort of artificially depressed. And so firms know that and they're going to raise profits in the short run in anticipation of squeeze profits uh, later on. And I'm not saying that that is going to be the primary thing that's going on here, but one has to look today and say that, you know what, profitability definitely has shrunk relative to what we were talking about in 2022 and 2023. Bill companies are making quite a bit of money, but it's definitely going in the direction that history history would suggest. So that's one thing that actually doesn't, you know, kind of questions uh, our thinking about greedflation. The other, maybe the more important 
is that, look, even in highly concentrated sectors, profit maximizing firms, uh, they can only raise prices if consumers let them raise prices. And a lot of economists would say maybe consumers let them raise prices because they were flush with cash and they were flush with cash because the government policies made them flush with cash. Right? That's sort of an argument that's more traditional minded uh, macroeconomists and inflation side. I think the greedflation people would say, well, yes, they can only raise prices because consumers let them. But the consumers are this is extraordinary times and consumers were either you know, they were kind of lied to or misled or they themselves don't really know what's going on. And so they're willing to give the companies the benefit of the doubt and pay for the, the, these prices, uh, higher inflated um, prices for all these things. Unclear. But again, this is the back and forth that we're we're looking at when it comes to is it really this profitability that that's that's driving it. So there's there's a couple of things that actually point against the greedflation hypothesis in its current iteration. Kind of moving from um, the the macro to the micro, although I guess it's not really micro, um, just taking one sector as an example, because I think that's driving a lot of particularly the the, the public debate over it. And, yes. and I know I've been hearing this for months that you know, when I remember my landscaper, um, we were having a conversation a few just a few months ago. And he said, you know, this inflation, it's really getting bad. You know, my, my wife went to Lansdale Meats and a loaf of bread was over $5. Something's mm -hmm. got to be done. Yeah. And that the the grocery shopping is driving a lot of the discussion, um, not just with the public, but, you know, at this point, even with policymakers. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the thing is that even though inflation has slowed in the U.S., you know, that people haven't seen the prices come back down. And in fact, in some cases, they're still growing. And that's especially um, true in grocery shopping and actually quite literally is a meat and potatoes issue, um, along with bread, baby food, sugar, citrus, fruits, some other things. Sure. So again, what, what are the main factors involved in the, the higher prices specifically within grocery and food and how much, you know, do we uh, blame corporate greed for that? Yeah, yeah. Very important. Very important for this debate. And I think 100 uh, percent correct. I think, uh, you know, so along, I, I'm sure many of us have read the Bob Casey report, right, that actually kind of lays out his that particular version of what greedflation means to the to the consumers of Pennsylvania. And he makes the case pretty clear. Frosted Flakes is up 14 percent. Chicken is up 20 percent. Dish soap is up 12 percent. He says, you know, do you want to see a movie? Well, all the appurtenances of movies are also popcorns up to 17%. You want to get a soda? That's 11% increase. Just streaming the movie from Disney is 27% more. This is definitely resonating with the American populace. There is something to be said with this kind of inflation, which, you know, again, we might call this a price price inflation, whereas it's not a wage price inflation. A wage price inflation is where the workers are bidding up the wages and then firms have to bid up the price. In some respects, wage price inflation protects the worker because they are keeping up with the inflation with their increased weight. They're actually causing the inflation as they raise their wages, but at least they're keeping pace with inflation. And this kind of inflation, this price price inflation, where it's like the pricing that companies are, are increasing without even maybe increasing volume, it's leaving workers much more vulnerable. 
So in that respect, I I I fully agree with with the Casey report that it's actually creating a situation where where where, where individuals are looking like they're very vulnerable. And in fact, um, corporate profitability is 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 part of that. It doesn't help that we have all these earnings reports by these companies that actually <laughs> explicitly state what they are doing. I mean, I think of PepsiCo recently said, yeah, we, we're increasing the price and we're seeing the customers come along with us, quote unquote, come along with us, meaning they are willing to you know, absorb these price increases and we can actually sort of get away with it. Um, and so that's sort of what we're hearing in these earnings reports, you know, again, something that we never saw like in the 1970s because we didn't pay attention to those things too, too carefully. So along with this, um, you know, there is, there is something to be said. I worry of course, about what the potential solutions are. Uh, as mm -hmm. I say, I think the, the, the more frivolous version of greedflation comes up often and it, it becomes, well, we can point the finger at particular companies and, and they're the ones that actually should bear the burden. And it resonates with lots of people, especially that don't like the way we fight inflation in the traditional sense. If we can pin pinpoint specific egregious behavior, let's say Pepsi company, let's say Disney, let's say these companies that are actually uh, clearly have these inflated profit margins, then maybe we can fight inflation, you know, like more carefully, not with a big broad brush of the higher interest rate policy. I have my suspicions, but that's definitely something that that's what's being discussed these days. Now, what are some of the other, you know, let, let's take for um, the, the premise here that greedflation is in fact a contributor to some extent. And, you know, according to some of the studies to a large extent, you know, if it's, if it's half over the last few years. So what are some of the potential solutions that you think might make sense? Yeah. So again, this is where I, the debate is very interesting. The new new theory calls for potential new solutions. I think the underlying cause still remains unclear. I, I'll, at the end of the day, greedflation as a theory is not really a theory about the causal impacts of inflation. I think it's important for people to know that. It, it's much better as a theory of who are the benefactors or losers from inflation. I think as a theory, greedflation really helps us understand that. As I said, the normal, typical wage price spiral type of inflation, we might not concern ourselves too much with the welfare of the American worker and consumer because they, they are in some ways protected. But this kind of price price inflation is far worse for people. The solutions, however, I worry on focusing on targeting specific companies that seem to be the culprit. When in fact, it's not so much the companies that are the culprits. It's the underlying demand that has been fueled by a series of fiscal and monetary policy decisions that happened in the past. My perspective is rather than be punitive, whether the, whether it's sort of uh, windfall profit taxes, which has been thrown around, whether it's outright pricing caps, which have been thrown around, we have to acknowledge that even right now, Europe, we've seen a series of price caps that have dealt that that is a response to their inflation. The United Kingdom is talking about capping prices of certain groceries right now. And indeed, people in this country, including the senator, uh, Casey, is talking about price caps of, of, of this nature right here at home. We in the macro profession, uh, or at least many of us might uh, really, really um, not want that world to, to, to happen uh, because a little bit of history will tell us that these price fixes often 
are far worse than the disease and they make shortages run rampant. Uh, Brazil tried this in 1986. Their inflation was going up through the roof. So they tried to simply say, you know, in companies, you're not allowed to raise prices anymore. And that was quite a disaster. It resulted in all kinds of crazy shortages. And then once they released the prices, of course, hyperinflation ensued. So we do want to learn a little bit of the history of, I guess, easy fixes. And one thing about greedflation is that I think it points to potential of easier fixes that are maybe a little bit uh, red herrings. They're not really quite the direction we would want. And now the other side of this, obviously, is the, and, you know, you talked about kind of the benefactors and, and the, the, those who have, you know, been on the losing side. This discussion brings us to, you know, the consumer. So, you know, in the face of these, um, you know, rising prices and, you know, to, again, to whatever extent greedflation is a factor in this, what are some of the things that consumers do to um, improve their lot in this? Yeah, I think one thing, and this is not a, this is a frustrating element uh, of this sort of elevated prices that's a function of all the inflation that we've experienced over the last few years. These prices, for the most part, are probably not going to be much lower than what we are seeing now. And the reason is, is we, you know, while we hate inflation, macro people really despise deflation. Deflation is even more destabilizing than inflation because of all the when prices go down, they induce consumers to not buy anything. Firms can't sell their wares and therefore have their people. And then you end up with this potential um, spiraling of lower and lower prices. Debt becomes extremely hard to to manage as the debt value grows and grows for for, for debtors in, around the country. Um, so as a result, deflation is something that we avoid. But at the same time, isn't that what consumers kind of want? We want these prices to adjust back down to what they were before. And I think it's important for the American consumer to sort of brace themselves and say, that's probably not going to happen. You see prices going down here and there for gross, for maybe for eggs, maybe for chicken, for maybe for certain right. products. But aggregatively, that's not something that we can expect. So, you know, that being said, what can one do Unfortunately, you know, it's usually the standard um, idea. Inflation, you can't really necessarily, you can shift your spending. Uh, you have to be much more cost, con uh, cost conscious, but that cost consciousness can only go so far because inflation by definition is the price increase of everything. So it's not like you can shy away from everything. You have <laughs> to buy certain things. Um, but obviously, Budgeting is going to be more important in this case. Relative price differences are going to be more important in this case. Having a food plan, for example, just being more careful. And then in terms of trying to save your say, uh, protect your savings, you have to acknowledge that inflation eats away at our nest eggs, right? So looking for higher yield savings accounts, for example, or investing in tips, these treasury securities that are actually protected from inflation. These are good ideas. No one really wants to think about this too much, obviously, um, but these are important considerations for households, especially, again, as I say, in a context where we really can't expect prices to sort of go back to the old days. I know it's a political season. We like to think about kind of back in the day when America was whatever, good, uh, great. We want to try to find that time when bread costs two bucks, <laughs> when milk costs 99 cents, and so on, right? We all, we all... And we should all think of that 
as truly a time of the past. Um, and we need to adjust to what our spending power is in the year 2024, which as it turns out is not that great. And there's just need, we need to be a little more careful about our spending uh, in that elevated price environment. Now we're, we're running uh, short on time, but I would like to give you uh, one last chance. If there, if there's anything we haven't discussed yeah. uh, so far, we, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, but um, if there's anything important that you think the listeners uh, should know about greedflation, inflation, we yeah. didn't even talk about shrinkflation and all the <laughs> other. <laughs> That's right. Sellers inflation is not the less sort of exciting. I think what we, you know, we talked a little bit about it to have a new way of thinking about inflation. And yet it's also at the same time, a little bit dangerous. It's not like we haven't been here before in the context of when prices are going up and up and up or down and down and down. If there's just instability, we have different ways of thinking about how to solve it. And it seems reasonable to look at the, what, who seem to be the big beneficiaries of inflation, which are the corporations. And these corporations are actually telling us that they're benefited from inflation <laughs> because their earnings reports, they have it right there. But I would caution the American public and I would caution us to vilify companies for doing what they are actually intended and designed to do in the first place, which is to make money, make money for their shareholders, provide uh, quality products for their customers. And when they do that, we have to expect that during especially weird times, there's going to be profitability that goes up through the roof. There might also just as easily be uh, profits that collapse and you end up with um, great number of bankruptcies and so on. These are the vicissitudes of the economy. Um, and so as, as much as people who like greedflation like to think about the solution as if we just pinpoint a couple of these culprits, we can pinpoint it's Amazon or it's Disney, or it's Apple, and we just tell them, no, 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 you cannot raise prices beyond a certain threshold, that that'll be the solution. I think that's far too simple, and I think it causes more problems uh, for the macro system than it, than it solves. And yet, I think we should listen and hear them out, because there is something to be said about this round of inflation that has been so detrimental. But I think we should keep an open mind on all of this. That would be what I would um, advocate to, to everybody. On that note, I'd just like to say thanks, Ahmed, for being with us again on Illuminate. You're welcome, Jack. Thanks a lot. Ahmed's research areas include economic growth, economic history, immigration, and the economics of education. Some of his current research focuses on the effects of peers and teachers on college student performance, the impacts of different experiences in military service on private sector employment, and the wage and employment effects of immigration on native workers. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu news. You'll also find links there to follow us on your favorite social media platforms. This is Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.